This morning we're going to hear um, from our sending church, Countryside Church, has graciously lent us uh, Pastor Michael Summers from their church, an associate pastor who came on there back in 2013. And that's the church that planted Redemption Hill here, for those of you that are visiting or maybe new. And I was privileged to get to work with Michael in youth group back in the day. And I can tell you he's a man who has been transformed by God's amazing love. He loves God's word, and he shows brotherly affection and love to all those he interacts with because he loves his God. And I pray this morning that uh, our hearts would be tender and turned to hear from God's servant this morning from God's word so that we too might be transformed. So would you bow your heads with me as we pray together that God's word would go forth with power. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that is transforming lives around the world. We thank you that there is praise and song and loud shouts of joy all throughout this world to your great name today. And we ask, Lord, that this morning your word would go forth with power here in this church and around the world. I pray specifically for Michael that you would give him strength to declare boldly the truths that have changed and transformed his life from your truth. We ask, Lord, this morning that hearts here would be tender, that we would be inclined by your spirit to be tender to receive your truth, your word this morning, and that it would transform us to live in a way that's pleasing in your sight, God. We love you. We thank you for your grace to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that the gospel would continue to resound in our hearts and through our lips here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. Well, I am so humbled to be here with you this morning. And I was so excited the last time I was with you all was back in 2018 at the Carnegie Building. And that was... Uh, that was a joyful time, and it's been so long, I'm, I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to be here. Would you join me in going in God's word to the book of Matthew? Let's go to Matthew chapter 5 and open up the word of God together. Matthew chapter 5 this morning. This is a, a special passage and I hope that for you, this is a passage that, as you look at the words of our Lord, that your heart can be charged up like an adrenaline shot. Matthew chapter 5, um, our text will be uh, beginning in verse 13. We'll read that in just a moment. But before we do that, I just I want to ask you a question. Do people know who you are? Do people know who you are? The Washington uh, Post covered a really amazing experiment in 2007. One of the greatest concert violinists in the world, Joshua Bell, was going to play his violin in a busy subway in Washington, D.C. So he put on jeans and a baseball cap, and he walked into the subway, and he, and he picked a spot where the acoustics would work, uh, by an entrance, it was early morning rush hour, just before 8 o'clock. Bell played his Stradivarius violin, handcrafted in 1713, and worth over $3.5 million. He played it for 47 minutes. As over a 1,000 individual people scurried by, he played masterpiece after masterpiece. Three days earlier, at his sold-out concert, seats were going for 
over $100. Two weeks later, he would play to a standing-only audience. But there in the subway, that morning, only seven people stopped to listen to him play. With his violin case open, the total money that he received from passers-by was $32.17. Bell's expertise is worth over $1,000 a minute. Only a single person actually knew who he was, and they marveled. Do people know who you are? I'm not talking about the people in this room. I'm talking about your next-door neighbor, the person in the cubicle next to you, the person who knows your, your coffee order because you're a regular. Do they know who you are? What I mean is this. Do they know that the light of the world is next door? Do they know that the light of the world walks past their office every morning or sits next to them in a meeting or sits next to them during soccer practice? Do they know? They should. In fact, Jesus says so in his sermon, as we'll see today. True followers of Jesus are to be a, an effective testimony for God's glory in our world. We're to stand out. Jesus says we're to stand out effectively because of who we are. Not what we possess, but who we are. So if you're in Matthew 5 now, uh, please follow along as I begin reading in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God, would you help us now to understand your words, that your spirit would speak to us through your words, and challenge us today, Lord, help us to submit to you today. In Jesus' strong name we pray, amen. This passage is, is one of those that you could probably, many of you could quote by memory. It's a very familiar kind of passage, and so um, I'm not really here to, to bring you something that's new. I'm just here to bring you the truth from God's word. And the truth uh, that's in this passage, I would argue, is, is very rarely lived out among God's people today. What we have here in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, is not an, isolation, an isolated passage. It's, it takes place in the middle of a sermon, and in this sermon, Jesus is preaching and he's describing the kind of people who will participate in God's kingdom. That's, that's on a very basic level what Jesus is doing. He's describing who's going to be a participant in God's kingdom. And one of the first steps to, to understand our passage is to back up and observe what Jesus is saying. So we're just going to get a running start if you will, into our passage. So would you back up with me to verse 10? And let's get a running start to understand where Jesus is coming from. Remember, in Matthew 5, um, Jesus is going through what we call the Beatitudes. It's the section where he says over and over, blessed are those, and then he 
fills in the blank. And he describes different kingdom participants. But let's start in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who, would bef- who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. These verses give us a better angle to understand our text. True followers of Jesus can expect persecution and hardship. But in our text today, we see that true followers of Jesus will not be persecuted and hated by everyone. Not by everyone. There will be some who will see and savor Jesus Christ because of the testimony of true disciples. So there's two words I have for you today. Two really important words. If you fall asleep in the next five minutes and you wake up at the the last song, but you still remember these two words, then you kind of get the the heart of what Jesus is after. Here's the two words uh, I have for you today. Willing effectiveness. Willing effectiveness. To describe what I I, I mean, uh, we should say this. According to verses 9 through 12, as a true follower of Jesus, you can expect rejection and persecution if you're effective. If you're effective. On the positive side, on the positive side, and we'll see this toward the end of our passage, if you're effective, you can expect that some will see and savor God for the first time. They will, as as the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good, but friends, you have to be willing. You have to be willing. So Jesus also gives two terms in our passage, um, simple yet extremely important, salt and light, and we'll go through each one here in a few moments. But in order to break down the passage today, I just want to divide this this, um, short passage into three main sections. So let's walk through three sections of the text. Here's the first one. Jesus gives a warning. Jesus gives a warning. Well, what's the warning about? What's it a warning for? It's a warning about an ineffective kingdom testimony. An ineffective kingdom testimony. And we see this in verse 13. Verse 13. And something we, we sometimes project onto this verse, verse 13, is, is the idea that Jesus is giving a command. That's actually not true. Jesus is not giving a command here. He's not saying, go, be salt in the world. Jesus instead is saying, you are. You are. You're the salt of the earth. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, he states that this is you. This is you. And I think it's easy to miss that. Um, If you read messages or read books and listen to messages on this passage, typically um, people take the angle that we're supposed to try to become salt, but that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying. As a believer in Christ, guess what? You are salt already. The question is not whether you can be salt as a Christian. The, The real question and the warning that Jesus gives here has to do with whether or not you've lost your effectiveness your saltiness. So what's the salt that Jesus is referring to? Well, there's, there's a lot of different interpretations. 
and some of them are very good. Um, some people believe that salt um, mentioned here refers to flavor, flavor. And that's most likely because the English translations that we have, they use the, the word taste or flavor in verse 13. And, and that could be true. Christians are to be a unique flavor in our world. We know we're, we're the fragrance, the aroma of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It's not far off to think that Christians are the flavor of Christ, if you want to think of it that way. But I don't think that's the main emphasis that Jesus is going for here. The word for taste or flavor is not the original word. It's just the closest thing that translators came up with. Um, there's not an English word to convey the idea. Some people believe that Jesus is referring to the preserving effects of salt. Because there was no refrigeration in those days. Salt was used to preserve things like meat. And we see the idea of God preserving um, cultures in the Old Testament because of righteous people. Now remember God told Abraham that uh, if there were 10 righteous people in Sodom, that he would not destroy it. So it's not difficult to understand the, the preserving effect of salt and, and how it could relate here. However, the question I have is, is throughout Jesus' teachings, do we really see much evidence that Jesus is bent on preserving our culture right now the way it is? Our world is in deep decay. Is Jesus' mission and the mission of the disciples, the, the kind of mission that, that seeks to keep the world the way it is, I don't really see that emphasis. I believe the best way to understand what Jesus is after and the best use of salt here in the passage is the purifying effect of salt. Not spicing up our world with the flavor of Jesus, not keeping the world the way it is, but changing it, changing it. Salt purifies. We actually see this concept in the Old Testament. It fits so well with the warning that we have here in verse 13. In Exodus chapter 30, the incense offerings were to be seasoned, the passage says, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. And in that context, we see that salt was a purifying symbol. Grain offerings in Leviticus 2.13 were to have salt, in Ezekiel chapter 16, there's this really interesting mention of salt. It says, and as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. They didn't have hospitals, they didn't have medical care, and so newborn babies were customarily washed with water, and then rubbed with salt, and then wrapped in Cloth And the salt would have been used in a purifying sense, fighting off any bacteria. That was helpful, especially if there were cuts on the, the newborn skin from the birth process. And then in 2 Kings chapter 2, the prophet Elisha, if you remember, he threw salt into a contaminated spring. It says in 2 Kings chapter 2, that he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So salt, by the time of Jesus, had customarily been associated with purity, a purifying agent. In the Old Testament sense, purification was probably the primary reference for salt. But in the New Testament, we still see this idea repeatedly. 
In Mark chapter 9, Jesus said in Mark 9, 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Purification. The idea Jesus spoke of was that, that being salted with fire is a refining or a purifying process. And if we look intently at the context of our passage today, we can see that purity is a central theme. It's a central theme in Jesus' sermon. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These things speak of a purity, a holiness, a set-apartness that characterizes true followers of Christ. Those who are pure in heart are the salt of the earth. And so I, I believe the idea of purification best fits what Jesus is saying in our passage. And then if we look at the, the passage itself from a structural angle, we see a parallelism. The words salt and light, in a sense, parallel each other. They carry the same idea. There's a, a purifying that takes place when light exposes decay and salt gets applied to it. The question is, how can followers of Jesus bring a purifying effect to our world? In what sense do we purify the decay of this age? And I believe the answer is effective gospel testimony. Those who have effective gospel testimony, yes, they do seek to help our culture economically, but on a much grander scale in God's plan of redemption, people who have an effective gospel testimony are leading people towards transformation spiritually. Spiritual transformation. Think of it this way. How would you describe people who, like Paul said in Ephesians, were dead in their trespasses but then made alive? made alive. Bringing spiritually dead people to life is the Holy Spirit's business. And the Holy Spirit moves within the people of God to reach those who are spiritually lost. Why? Well, so they can be transformed. So they can be purified. So they can be washed, clean, made new. Jesus is not talking about humanitarian effort or political involvement or moral protest or social activism as being the salt that purifies the world. He's not. Now, how do I know that? Well, the reason we can be emphatic about that is that any person in the world can engage in those kinds of activities. Anyone can. Anyone in the world can protest and can seek to steer the direction of, of, of politics and alleviate poverty. And certainly Christians should be involved in our culture in all these ways, but Jesus didn't say, everyone's the salt of the earth. He said, you are the salt of the earth. He was referencing the disciples, the true followers of Jesus, those who, who are poor in spirit, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those people, the salt of the earth. When we take Jesus at his word, we understand that only true followers of Jesus are the kind of salt he's talking about. The only kind of salt that actually purifies a decaying world. So true followers have a unique function. Purification, bringing the truth of the gospel to a decaying world 
so that those who believe might be made clean, brand new, purified. When we zoom out and see what Jesus is saying, he's making it clear that those who are partakers in the Messiah's kingdom will be effective in bringing purification to a decaying world. But here in our passage, the structure of verse 13 is a warning. It's a warning. So notice that Jesus asks a rather odd question. Do you see that question? If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? That's a strange question. It's designed to be a strange question. Can salt really lose saltiness? Science says no. Salt is not a substance that can lose enough mineral compound to no longer be salt. However, salt can become useless. It can become useless. How? Well, the only way salt can become useless is by taking something else on other than salt to contaminate it. Over time, salt can collect enough contaminating elements uh, that it sort of takes on a foul odor and clumps together, and it's too intermixed with pollutants to be effective. So when Jesus speaks of losing saltiness, He's speaking of being contaminated. And there's a great spiritual truth that this question illuminates for us. True followers of Christ can lose their effectiveness as salt for a decaying world. So how can you do that? Well, I can tell you it's not by what you're wearing or what kind of music you like or what you're driving. Instead, you can lose your effectiveness through taking on the pollution of sin. It's sin that makes the salt of the earth no longer salty. Let's use Jesus' own words um, from later on in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus says this, Matthew 15, 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then uh, later on in Matthew 15, 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So do you see that? If, if, you, if you lose your saltiness, it's, it's not just because you were in the world. You're supposed to be in the world. You're supposed to be in the world as the salt of the earth. But you can be defiled and you can lose your saltiness by engaging in sin. That's why Jesus' next statement in our text is a warning. In verse 13, he says, It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So back in the time of the Roman Empire, um, they couldn't just take salt that had become contaminated and that was used up and, and just chuck it in buckets um, wherever they wanted because salt, salt will ruin the soil. Um, so what they would do is they would take salt that was used, that was contaminated, and they would put it on roads. And it would keep things from growing in the roads, um, but sort of function like gravel. And it kept the roads uh, from having um, all sorts of plants and things growing up in it. So that was a function for 
used up salt. And with that picture in mind, Jesus says that useless salt is no longer effective as a purifier and it only has one use, getting cast out and trampled on. Back in the first century, there was a Jewish rabbi uh, by the name of Joshua ben Hananiah who famously stated this, if the salt starts to stink, with what shall one salt it? All right, so if you get stinky salt, how do you make it just regular salt again? Here's his answer, with the afterbirth of a mule. That's pretty disgusting. But the audience would, would have understood at that time that mules don't reproduce. They don't reproduce. They're hybrids. They're sterile, meaning that it's impossible. You can't add enough salt to stinky salt to fix it. And the same is true with Jesus' question. You can't fix useless salt. It's no longer effective for purification. So summing up the warning from Jesus is this. You can ruin your effectiveness. You can ruin your testimony for the kingdom of God. So I'll ask you this. What kind of sin is contaminating you? What's the state of your heart? Your saltiness is determined by the state of your heart. So, what's the state of your saltiness? What kind of testimony do you have in Lawrence? It only takes one foolish, sinful choice to ruin a testimony. True disciples, true kingdom participants, they bring effective purification to the world. Second part of our text this morning we see in verses 14 and 15. And that is Jesus gives examples. Jesus gives examples. So Jesus first gave a warning in verse 13, and in verses 14 and 15, he gives examples. Well, what kind of examples is he giving? Well, he's giving examples for effective kingdom testimony. Examples for effective kingdom testimony. All right, so look at verse 14. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. So here we have another positive statement from Jesus. You are the light of the world. And this is amazing when we look at what Jesus said about himself in the book of John. In John chapter 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Will have the light of life. Whoever follows Jesus will have the light of life. In that sense, we are the light of the world. We're not synonymous with Jesus. We're not God. Instead, as those who have the light of life, we are the light by reflecting the light of the world himself. Why? Well, because Jesus is the light that shines through us into a dark, decaying world. Jesus himself was the light of the world. In fact, um, later when he healed a blind man, um, Jesus made this statement in John chapter 9, uh, verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus was the light of the gospel to a world of darkness. And now that Jesus 
no longer is walking in the world bodily, he makes an amazing statement that we are now the light of the world. Notice in our text, Jesus uses two examples, a city and a lamp, a city and a lamp. And specifically, this lamp was an oil of lamp in that context. He makes a statement um, first about the city. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So think about this for a moment. A city on a hill. The illustration makes us think about a, a city that is set apart because it's up high. It's visible. You can't hide a city that's on a hill. That's impossible because it's elevated above everything around it. It's separated from what's around it. It's unlike what's around it. And Jesus uses this example in the context of calling true disciples the light of the world. And the truth is that that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are set apart from our world. You are a partaker in a greater kingdom than this world. And you are different than this world. How? Well, we're set apart and we're different because we're no longer dead spiritually. We're no longer dead spiritually. We no longer walk in darkness. And if we zoom out and we see this verse in the the context, we can see that true followers of Jesus will be persecuted for it and they'll be hated for it. A city on a hill. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're different. You're different. I'll ask you uh, another question here. How different is your testimony? How different is your example, your witness, your character on display? How different are you than the world around you? And I'm not talking about your style. I'm talking about your character. Character that abstains from sin, that's not ruled by sin, not characterized by sinful self-centeredness and self-love and self-promotion. Do you stand out? A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Example number one, then Jesus uses another one, an oil lamp. An oil lamp. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So Jesus says something negative, and then he says something positive. Negatively, he says that the light is not used by hiding it, right? People don't light a lamp at night and then cover it. Uh, That's the negative. Here's the positive. They do light a lamp, and then they put it on a stand. That's positive. It's displayed prominently for all. And here's the, the real spiritual truth behind this. True disciples of Jesus make the light of God's glory visible. True disciples who have the light of life make that light visible to their surrounding context of darkness. We'll get to that again here in just a moment. So these are the examples, two illustrations, very straightforward, very easy to grasp. They're central to what Jesus is about to say because he's going to say something pretty incredible. 
And here's our third section of the text. Third section of the text. We find this in verse 16. Jesus gives a command. All right, so this passage in the most basic understanding is that Jesus gives a warning, Jesus gives examples, and then Jesus gives a command. Well, what's the command? Jesus is commanding a willing kingdom testimony. A willing kingdom testimony. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. This command is really a commission from Jesus. It's a commission. And it comes straight off of the two illustrations that we just saw. In the same way. Well, the same way is what? The same way is what? A city on a hill and a lamp on a stand. So here it is. Plain and simple. True disciples are to obediently display the gospel. True disciples are to obediently display the gospel. You are the light of the world. Display it. Display it. Are you willing? Jesus says, let your light shine before others. You know, there's this idea among a lot of Christians that that anything spiritual needs to be hidden. We need to keep spiritual things separated from our, our public lives and only do those things privately. And part of that comes from misapplying other passages of Scripture, right? You know those ones where Jesus talks about praying in secret and fasting in secret and giving in secret, not displaying your worship for all to see. The reason I say that people misapply those is because in those contexts, Jesus is talking about what you do for God as worship. What you do for God as worship, not using those things to to build up a reputation for yourself that, that brings you glory. So there must be something different about those passages and this passage where Jesus is saying, get it out in the open. Here in this passage, Jesus is calling for people to see our works. So what's the difference? What's the difference? Well, the difference is the good works that Jesus is referring to and the one who gets the glory. So what are these good works? Well, in in other passages, and the other ones um, that we don't have time to go there, but where Jesus talks about praying, giving, and fasting in secret, the worship that you have toward God that, that comes from you, the prayers that come from you, the giving that comes from you, yes, keep that private. Keep that private. Because it comes from you to God. But the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, leading up to our passage, they talk about something that doesn't come from you. Something that doesn't come from you. See, giving and worship and prayer and fasting, those things, while they are actions that you do coming from you to God, if you look earlier in Matthew 5, the hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that comes from God doing a work in you. Um. Blessed are the pure in heart. The purity of heart, that comes from God. Blessed are the merciful. The one who shows mercy. 
Well, that comes from God. (laughs) Blessed are the peacemakers. Well, that peace comes from God. And the light of the world that you have is not yours. It's not your light. It's the light of the world himself that you reflect. It's God's character shining through you. So Jesus says, put that on display. Put that on display. Put on display the character and the things that look nothing like natural you and look everything like God's character. Make it public. By the way, that's exactly the kind of testimony that you and I are to have of the Messiah King in this world, a testimony that is other, other than this world, a character that is like God and not like the darkness. Here's why that's so essential. If you do not display the light of the world, but instead you display darkness, or you hide the light of life in order to blend in with the darkness around you, you will be fruitless when you try to share the gospel. You'll be fruitless. And some of you here already know that if you tomorrow at work tried to share the gospel with your coworkers, you would immediately get rejected, not because of the content of the gospel, but more so because of your testimony, because of the messenger. Our testimonies, what we display makes a huge impact on what we share. So that's the command. That's the command. In the same way, display. Display the light of the world. What's the result? Well, there will be some who will persecute you, as we saw in verses 10 through 11 and 12. Some will persecute you, but there will also be some who will glorify your Father who's in heaven, verse 16. How will they glorify the Father? Well, They will glorify the Father as they are drawn from the darkness into light when they're transformed, when they're purified, when they're made brand new in Jesus Christ. They will glorify God. They will not glorify you. Will they glorify God because they see Jesus' character in your life? Most likely not. They will glorify God because your life will validate your gospel witness. A life that displays the character of Christ, that's not contaminated by sin and decay, that kind of life will give you the platform to reach the darkness with the light of the gospel. Some people take this passage to sort of justify a passive gospel witness. I don't believe that Jesus anywhere is promoting a passive testimony. Instead, the good works that come from a changed life will include sharing the good news. It will include a testimony that's not only a testimony in actions, but it's a testimony in words. Both need to match up. Letting your light shine 
on display is not a passive action. It involves a life that reflects the character of God and then proclaims a message that's validated by the character of God made visible in you. That's putting the lamp on a stand. I think it's really sad that among most Christians, there's this idea that if I am just a good boy or girl, people will watch me acting good and then will somehow be drawn to surrender their life to God. That's not true. Just because you have good behavior doesn't make someone sincerely desire to be made clean. Instead, the character of God displayed in your life gives you that platform to share. Not only with a passive testimony, but an active testimony that gives through the good works of speaking the truth, gives the gospel. We like to think that maybe if we're just well-behaved, then that's the gospel witness that we need to have. No, that's the, that's the foundation. That's the backdrop. That's the, that's the platform that gives you a clear stand that that light gets put on. So what do we do with this? What do we do with these, these verses? I've just got four very simple implications. We'll, we'll close up. Four very simple implications from this passage. Um, here's the first one. Repent of sin. Repent of sin. Some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not immoral. I'm not engaging in some great sin. Okay. Well, there are a lot of Christians who are so proud and self-absorbed and graceless that they stink, just like the decay of this world. Repent of sin. Repent of sin. Jesus said in his words, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. So look inside. Look inside. Some of you may be in situations where your choice to sin is ruining your effectiveness. And your sin makes you stink like the rest of this world. Repent of that. Repent of that. Number two, stop hiding the light from the darkness around you. Stop hiding the light from the darkness around you. You might be in an environment at work or at your kids' activities or in your neighborhood where you desperately want to go unnoticed. You desperately don't want people to know that you're the light of the world. Stop hiding it. What your actions really mean, if we're being just really raw, what your actions mean is that you don't want people around you to know the light of the gospel. Stop hiding it. Stop hiding it. Number three, obey God as a willing display of the gospel. Obey God as a willing display of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus provided salvation and freedom from sin. Do you display a freedom from sin in your life? 
Are you displaying the light of the gospel through a changed life? And then last one, pray that God would shine effectively through you. Pray that God would shine effectively through you. Willing effectiveness. Willing effectiveness. Do you know what makes you effective? The light of the world's effective when it shines into darkness. So, are you willing? Are you willing to put it on a stand? Are you willing to keep your saltiness from being contaminated? Are you willing for other people to have the glorious blessing of redemption that you've been afforded? Your passive testimony needs to become an active one. Needs to become an active one. I'll share just a very quick story and I'll be done. There was a, a man, when I first got out of college, I worked at a shoe store for three years. And uh, I prayed before God gave me that job or it helped me be a gospel testimony to somebody. And when I showed up, there was a, a man that was working there that was always cursing me out. He was always telling the store manager that I was doing things that I wasn't, lying about me, trying to get me in trouble, just always getting under my skin, always trying to get all of the other workers in the store to dislike me. It was so frustrating. It was so frustrating. And his name was Bill. We've all got a Bill in our life. Through God's grace, and only God's grace, I didn't yell at Bill, I didn't fight Bill, I didn't blow up at Bill, just took it. And was kind to Bill, didn't retaliate, that's the Lord. But here's what God did through that. Two years later, Bill hated my guts, we were not friends. But his wife died. And so I showed up at the visitation and talked with Bill, and he was just broken. The next day, I took him out to dinner. And that night, at the dinner table, Bill put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It wasn't because of me. It's because the light of the world himself is effective. And when the light shines through you, and you're not blocking the light, and you're not ruining your saltiness through sin. It provides a platform for your passive testimony to turn active. So I hope for you that you are challenged this morning, not by me or anything from that story other than the fact that God wants to use you. Are you willing? God, thanks for our time this morning. Thank you for your word spoken through this incredible sermon um, in Matthew 5 through 7. As we looked at this, this little small portion today, I pray that it would be powerfully effective in our lives, pushing us towards um, a willing 
testimony to be willing, willingly effective. The power that we have, God, is not ours. The power to be effective in this world. Instead, it's your power. It's you and it's always been you. Help us to get out of the way and instead to put you on display for all to see. We ask all these things in the very strong name of Jesus. Amen.